Funkateers, Bootsy here to bring the Truth and Rhythm family's attention to Funk Not Fight. Yeah, this is a call to action. We spread hope, not hate, uh, to gain satisfaction throughout our communities via the music uplifting unity. Uh, Peppermint Patty, tell us a little more. Thinker is our partner. Thinker music, that is. So please check the link that's scrolling across the bottom, click it, and submit your music. Let's all funk, funk not, not fight. fight. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. Brought to you by funkinstuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth in Rhythm Mothership keyboardist Gary Hudgens, best known for his studio and stage work for Funkadelic, The Brides of Funkenstein, and other P-Funk acts. He was part of The Brides' amazing band that also featured Blackbird McKnight and Dennis Chambers. His credits list also includes Crystal Waters, Tony Braxton, Angie Stone, Lenny Kravitz, Michael Jackson, Brandy, and many others. Gary, thank you for joining me. How are you today? Doing fine. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Where are you today, Gary? I'm at my studio in, in um, Owens Mills right now. 
All right. And uh, how long have you called that home? Well, I've been here, oh man, about nine years. And this that was in Baltimore City. Then I moved out here to the county. All right. Well, it looks like you got some goodies uh, back there. I see some keyboards and things. So yeah. all good. Nice. Um, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Been looking forward to talking to you. I appreciate you taking the time. So uh, from Baltimore, so many others, you know, from Baltimore that have that funk in their blood, you know, whether it's Mudbone or, you know, uh, uh, Daryl or uh, Dennis or just on a uh, ski. Benny, Benny Cowan, Greg, Greg Boyer, Greg Thomas. It's, you know, back in the day when we all were youngsters, Baltimore was like one of the funk capitals on the East Coast. I mean, we had so much talent in this city. I mean, so much. Still do, actually. Yeah, is there anything in particular that you think about that area or that city just kind of, you know, breeds that that fertile ground for, for that kind of music? Well, to me, it was, um, um, I would just call it competition, you know, because um, back in those days, you know, none of us were like ballers. We didn't play ball. We were musicians, man, so... We would actually settle scores at the club, you know. We had a beef with somebody or another band. You know, one of our um, sayings was, let's, well, we used to just say, well, let's just take it to the stage, sucker. And that's what we would do, take it to the stage, to, to coin a phrase from George Clinton, take it to the stage. That's what we do. We'd settle a dispute, made the best band win. And what that did, that helped us to... Uh, I gotta say, refine our playing abilities, uh, just um, refine our skills, as it were, you know, just, you know, just overall improve our craft a lot better just by being competitive, you know? And what drew you to keyboards and what age did you start doing that? Well, the real backstory is, you know, my, my dad was a guitar player. He had an acoustic guitar up in the room upstairs in the bedroom behind the door and we were forbidden to play it and me or any of my siblings but when he wasn't home i would sneak in, up there and play it anyway and then put it back in the case well one day i was playing the guitar and i popped the string boring <laughs> you know and i put it back i put it back in the case and just trying to hide and, and i confessed it was me that broke it so uh guitar was my first instrument actually what what happened after that i would I gravitated towards the piano at the recreation center in my neighborhood. They had a piano in the back room and they would let me play it. And I started banging on it and banging. Then I started actually trying to play it. I probably was about 14 years old. So that's what started it. Um, I wanted to take lessons. Well, I couldn't do that. Um, so I decided to teach myself. And that's what I did. I did that self-taught completely although i did take by the time i got to high school i took basic music theory so to know a little bit about what i'm doing so we did that and wow i got my first band when i was about 16 you know they they asked me to come and play in a band i didn't think i was good enough but i came there one day anyway to listen to them to rehearse and they sounded pretty good only thing was one of the songs they were doing it wasn't quite right so I said, hold up, hold up, guys, y'all not playing right. Anyway, so I just decided to go listen to them rehearse. I told the guys they weren't doing it quite right. 
and I showed them how the song goes. It was a song that I knew. So next thing you know, I'm in the band. And not only am I in the band, I'm the music director. <laughs> right, out, right out the gate. So that's that's the beginning, the very, very beginnings of my career. Wow. And uh, who were some of your favorite uh, keyboard players and bands and what types of music? Well, you know, actually, I gravitated towards um, War. War was one of my first bands that I really liked listening to with headphones. With War, um, I would listen to Earth, Wind and & Fire. Larry Dunn was one of my early up keyboard players that I really liked. Larry Dunn, his work. Then I went on later on to really appreciate the work of George Duke, who actually became a big influence for me. I really liked the way he played. I really tried to emulate him in a lot of ways. And um, that those were my biggest influences. But I, I liked a lot of keyboard players. Some of them were here in, in, were here in Baltimore, some of my local um, competition, I guess they were pretty good. Derek Brooks. Derek Brooks was a, um, he's a local keyboardist, a friend of mine who was also, was also a keyboardist in the Baltimore Connection. If we haven't talked about that, we'll talk about that in a few. The Baltimore Connection. Are you familiar with that, Scott? Isn't that, the group, isn't that the group that sort of was the uh, breeding ground for some of the guys that ended up moving on to P-Funk eventually? Well, actually, it, um, actually it was, the P-Funk members, most, uh, mostly all of the members in that group were on tour with George at the time. And we would, when we were off tour, we would get together and do concerts around town, around Baltimore. So we called ourselves the Baltimore Connection, which was which signified the connection to the P-Funk empire. And we had some of our other friends who were not actually members, but still we wanted to be with one of them to be with us. Derek Brook was one of them. He was one of those musicians so yeah it was one a thing that we did in the summertime outside in the park and it was pretty good As a matter of fact we're thinking about well thinking about and possibly get ready to talk about doing that again this summer coming up and we'll keep you posted on that yeah bring it um so uh, what would you say was your first um professional quote unquote break i would say when i when i got with the Brides of Funkenstein, you know, I, I was um, a copier technician at the time, you know, or in, in Silver Spring area. And I was coming home from work and the phone was ringing as I was coming into my place. And it was um, Jeff Bunn and Skeet, Skeet Curtis down in Atlanta calling me, wanting to know if I could come down to Atlanta for a meeting with George and the rest of the crew for a possible gig. And I was a cut off guard with that guy. You know, I was, I don't know, I just, I hadn't even taken off my, my clothes from work. But anyway, I told them that I didn't know if I could get down to Atlanta, I was, funds were low. They told me that, you know, the ticket was already taken care of. They already did that. I, like, really? Wow. So I went down to Atlanta and met, met the guys and they were, we were getting ready to do the Aqua Boogie aqua boogie tour back in i think it was 19 no 79 79 and that was the actually beginning of my professional career it was just like almost like if, if i were a basketball player for an analogy and, and at the local basketball court at, at our school it was like going from that point to being in the nba yeah i'm, I'm now i'm now in the nba all of a sudden it was just like whoosh 
just like that, you know. Um, turn the page, and here I am doing um, the, um, venues like Madison Square Gardens, um, um, the coliseums, and all these stadiums, and all this kind of stuff. It was pretty heady, pretty heady stuff, man. You know, but I I took to it pretty pretty good. You know, like a fish in water. I was like in my element, man. You know, wow, this is me, man. I really, you, really you learned it. to swim on the aqua buggy tour. Come on. Yeah. Yes, I did. <laughs> I did learn how to swim. Actually, literally. I took um, Junie's place. Junie, Junie um, Morrison was the keyboard player for the prize at that point. And he had other things to do and they needed somebody to replace him. And who would have thought that the little Gary Hudgens could, could replace the great Junie Morrison? Are you kidding me? You know, but I did. You know, I studied real hard, studied real hard uh, all of the brides of Funkenstein songs and I studied the whole entire set and we would practice in the in the um hotel room not even in a practice hall and that's how I learned how to do the set uh, and, uh, from practice in a hotel room and the rest is history you know I went on to to do a lot of other things from that point how, how old were you when you got with the brides in the first place I, I was 23 23 years old yeah now so I was just trying to make my way into the nine to five world. And then I get, like I told you, I get this call from um, Atlanta as my buddies, Jeff Bunn, like I said, Jeff Bunn and Skeet. Hey man, come on down here and do this. Okay. You know, here I am. <laughs> just that, just that fast, man. We had a good time too. It was great. How, how um, familiar and big of a fan were you of P-Funk before that? Really big. You know what, man? And here's the, here's the thing about it, you know, of course, everybody was a P-Funk fan back in them days. I had their albums and all that. I wasn't exactly a funketeer, as we would say, but I really appreciated their music and the way they put it together. And I would read the back of the album covers, the LPs, and um, I knew all of the names. And now all of a sudden, like I said, you turn a page and here I am playing with all of these people, you know, Ray Davis, um, um, Boogie, um, um, Gary Scheider, uh, wow, you know, George Clinton. It's wow, I couldn't, you know, it's hard to I I imagine even to, to this day, you know, wow, wow, how did that happen? You know, it's, it's like I landed in the land of Oz or something along that line. It was funny, but uh, <laughs> I, I was, I was a, I was a fan, but not exactly a funketeer at that point. You know, I didn't know all of the songs backwards and forwards, and I could learn everything. And I knew I knew all of the names of everyone. And and the really the really heady part about it was when I went down into Atlanta. I was introducing myself. Most of the members told me, "We know who you are." I, I was taken aback and go, "Really? Wow!" You know, I, I guess I'm just kind of humble. You know, I, I just enjoy the music. I don't get involved in the the star studded part of this thing here you know i don't have a lot of photographs or um um autographs i don't have any really of, of all of the really really big names of people who i've rubbed elbows with and had conversations with but just never took a picture you know you take a picture with them i just never did that i just appreciate the conversation that we had at that moment yeah that's pretty much it yeah. Wow, Gary. Um, so 
who was uh, basically uh, sort of leading the, the brides uh, right then in terms of, you know, uh, musical direction and organization and and um, set list and that kind of stuff? Well, that, that would have to be mostly Blackbird McKnight. He was the acknowledged band leader at that point when I first got in. And we got a lot of the cues from him on a lot of the intros and tempos and all that sort of thing. Um, and we all kind of put our heads together. That when we rehearsed together, all of us together in the hotel room, we put our heads together on, as to how the show would go. We all had an input. You know, um, we, we, I, changed, I changed a few things myself to the way I wanted it to go. Excuse me, I didn't play everything like um, Junie Morrison. I don't play exactly like he does. Uh, but um, um, to answer your question, Blackbird McKnight, he was the acknowledged band leader at that point. So, Gary, can you give us a couple of uh, quick hits of your impressions of, um, you know, the big names from that entourage uh, at that time? You know, when you first met, I'm sure you met George Clinton at some point mm-hmm. and, and maybe Bootsy at some point and Bernie Worrell, yeah. um, Gary Scheider. Can yes. you just give us like some like quick descriptions of wh- how they you know impressed upon you at that time? Well, mm, that's that's a good one, good question. No, one of my biggest impressions was working with um, um, Junie Morrison, um, Junie and Bernie Worrell. They were two of my they were they were my keyboard heroes. They actually showed me a lot of uh, moves on the keyboard of how to um, navigate through the P funk set. You know, some of the some of the things I learned weren't, weren't exactly quite right. That's what I thought they were. But Junie would set me straight. No, 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 man. It goes like this. It goes like this. Play, play like this. And so um, they were a big impression on me. You know, they was like they were like big brothers, so to speak. You know, um, Ray Davis. Ray Davis. I really became um, good friends with him. He was just like this really really cool guy, man. You know tear the roof off, we're going to tear the roof. You know, just really cool guy, man. Just like a big brother, you know. Um, Boogie, um, Cordell Mawson, he's he and I, we became pretty close and, you know, had a good vibe together. Clip, um, Michael Clip Payne, we became fast friends. Oh, man, you know, just we hit, uh, Clip and I, we would write songs together. Some of the songs actually made it, some of the ideas made it to some of the brides, um, um, albums you know just bits and pieces maybe not the whole thing that we practice about but take a piece of it and add it to a song when we were in the studio cutting one of their albums and so he was a big influence we just got a kick out of doing that um george clinton you know we didn't really vibe a whole lot he was always in and out in and out he was the dude he was the man but when i would see him i would mostly see him just before the show started or after we were already on stage he would come out from Nowhere from anywhere. I don't know where he was. And he would just appear and he'd come and do the show. And sometimes he'd be in the dressing room afterwards. We'd have a few words together, you know, but he was always surrounded by all these people. And like I said before, I never really got into the star studded part. I never really acknowledged George Clinton as like this big star that he was, you know. I just looked at him as a person with immense talent. And creativity, and I respected that part, not the um, not the uh, George Clinton part. You know, it was just George, man. I mean, you know, but um, we had a few um, good conversations. He liked some, he liked a lot of the work that I did. 
he liked the solos that I took. He would stand behind me. I would see, notice him standing behind me when I took a solo on the stage. We had a battle, me and Blackbird McKnight, for example. Um, it was Blackbird. We were doing a lot. We were doing a, this this piece called a nickel bag of solos. That was the, that's what they called it, a nickel bag of solos. So um, it was uh, it was Blackbird's McKnight. Blackbird's turn to um, take a solo. He had this new synthesizer for his guitar, and he took a solo using the keyboard sound. And frankly, I was sort of offended, you know? Wow, let's listen to him. So I was right, like, right after him, I took a solo with a guitar sound and nailed it, man. You know, they were like, wow, look at these sounds coming out of this, this rolling keyboard that I was using. And we just kept that going. You know, Joe, he really loved that competition. Back to the competition that I talked about earlier. There it is again, you know, com compete, man. I was, my attitude in, in a funky sort of way was, here you take a, a keyboard solo, or I'll go even better. I'll take a guitar solo now. Take that. And that's how that started. And they actually recorded that. And so you can buy that. It's on it made the album. Is yeah. that on that, that live uh, collection? Yeah, one of the live collections. Yeah. yeah it's that's Nickel Bag of Solos. That's a phenomenal track. It's really long and you guys just go off on it. We, that's that, and that, you know, Scott, that's one of the things I really loved about working with George Clinton and the Funkadelic organization. It was no they were structured, let me say they were structured, but you could still within the within the walls of the structure, you could do anything you wanted to do, anything you wanted to do. There was a time when, um, on one tour, I, the keyboard started the entire show, the lights would go down, I would play whatever I wanted to in E flat. As long as, it was, as long as it was an E flat minor, that was the setup. You know, I learned that from, um, from Bernie Worrell, when we would do um, Maggot Brain, he would do, um, uh, Maggot Brain is in the key of E minor, and they would turn the lights down and let Bernie Worrell just do his thing, man, in E minor, E minor. And I learned, wow, we can do that. I can play. He, every night in every city was a different thing that he did. It was never the same two things. And I said, okay, I love this. I love this fact that we can just play whatever's on our mind, whatever's on our heart tonight. So I learned that from him. It's it really a great thing. I really appreciated that. Yeah. So some of the big, some of the big influences, you know, in addition to the ones I named, my, my Baltimore connection. We all, we always vibe off of each other. Skeet, Dennis Chambers, Dennis Chambers, and I. We were roommates when we first got on the P Funk tour. We both started about the same time. Whereas new guys, the new musicians had to share a room. You don't get a single room coming right out of here, man. So they, Bob's been the two new guys from Baltimore. They threw us in the same room for about the first two tours, man, you know, and finally we were able to reach a status where we could get a single room. But we we learned a lot. We vibed off of each other at that point because we had a lot of time together. But the rest of the Baltimore crew, you know, um, Benny Benny Cowan on trumpet, he was one of my big influences. He was another one, one of my biggest um how can I put it? Uh, person, one of my biggest people who, you know, to tooted my horn for me, so to speak, for lack of a better term. He really did that for me, put my name out there and got me and helped me to get into the organization. Skeet Curtis, Jeff Bunn, 
Ted Bunn was a big a big influence on me getting into the group. So uh, we all vibed off of each other every night. That Baltimore connection was always evident, you know, and never left, and it still hasn't. Yep. Yeah. Who out of that uh, group, who was like the biggest cut up or who was clowning the most, you know, when you guys would be out there on the road? It, uh, you know, on the P-Funk set? Yeah. Probably Cernos, um, Carlos McMurray. He's the, um, he was Cernos character, the second one. We had another one before him. But um, him, Clip, Michael Clip Payne, he was a big cut up. You know, we got a kick out of watching him. He would just do whatever man you just never know what this guy was going to do from night to night man uh he one night he might be um crawling across the floor another night if we had a tarzan rope he'd be swinging from the ropes but i i would say um clip pain he was my he was the biggest cut up to me everybody else was you know focusing on their instrument and on the music yeah well gary so i mean being at the um you know, right there with guys like Junie and Bernie, two of the most innovative, uh, but enigmatic, uh, keyboard players of all time, you know, and unconventional in a lot of ways. So creative. Um, you mentioned about picking up, you know, doing your own thing in E flat before the band would start, but yeah. was there anything else, you know, or, or things that you could share with viewers that, helped make in your mind uh junie and bernie so unique in their keyboard art wow you know that's that's a hard question well you know the thing about i can start with bernie you know my conversations with him he told me about his background i had no idea that he played with the new jersey symphony orchestra i think when he was like nine or something as a prodigy you know um i was just amazed at that you know I I, I, ha I have an ear for classical music as well although I never actually studied it um, what happened I think when I was 14 the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra came to our school to do a performance and I was just completely completely blown away completely blown away for weeks and weeks before I could get my head back on straight so I had an ear for the classical and listening to Bernie talk about his classical experiences was really interesting to me. Um, Bernie's just this really cool guy, man. You know, I was just amazed at how cool and and warm that these, these musicians were. I thought they were like these wild and crazy guys that you see on stage. But after the music was over and we were back on a tour bus, we're back at the hotel, they're like just, just these normal people, man, you know. And I really, really latched on to that, that part. So, um, you know, in my conversation with Junie, you know, he would always let us hear that me and especially me and Jeff Bunn for some reason, he would always let us hear his newest and latest ideas before they ever made it to um, the album. Like one, one track in particular was... Um, I think not just knee deep. When we heard that track, when it was in its conception, you know, it was no words. It wasn't. It didn't even have a title yet. And we thought, man, this is a phenomenal, phenomenal track, Journey Man. Wow, listen to you. You're just this really talented guy. And we just appreciated the way he would trust our ears and trust us to listen to his stuff before anybody else heard it. So we and we had that we had that luxury. Me and me and Jeff Bond, you know, he, for some reason, he would come to our room, and that's how we 
blended and bobbed off each other like that. What was it like when you first got in the studio with those guys for your first studio work in, in the funk mob? Well, here's the thing. Most of my studio work was in, was with um, the brides of Funkenstein and not Funkadelic or Parliament. You know, for some reason, um, I never did make those sessions. Um, I was called in to do the Help Out with the Brides albums and the Brides sessions. Um, the thing about it, um, we record in Detroit. And all of the time, it wasn't a pleasant experience, you know. We would go there and work long hours and be in the studio forever and ever. You know, it was just kind of hard to get paid, Scott. You know, couldn't get paid for that. You know, they put us up with room, with a room, and they would feed us a little bit, you know. And I just, I just didn't like that, you know. I didn't think it was worth it to me, you know, to um, go to the studio and put those long hours in and not receive the financial part. And they would get, they would get, we get the um, credits on the album for the writers and and the um, performance part, but we just couldn't get the studio session pay and all that stuff. So, I with that, I just stopped going. You know, I, I had other things that I could do that were more profitable at that time here, right here in Baltimore, DC area. So I just stopped going. And so I, people ask me, hey. Hey, Gary, how come you're not on a lot of P-Funk albums? Well, that's the reason why, you know, I'm a, I'm a businessman, you know, I'm, I consider myself to be in business. I'm not here just for the funk of it, for lack of a better term. You know, I'm here. I have bills to pay like everybody else, man, and you have to get paid. Matter of fact, that was the first time I went out with George Clinton, well, actually the brides of Funkenstein. Um, I, I actually turned in my resignation because I had asked the tour manager if I could actually earn more money per concert. And they they told me, actually, no, no, not now, maybe some other time. Well, my, my bills, my bills kept piling up while I'm on, a, I'm on the road with them. And I'd come on, I got a stack of bills. I just couldn't meet them. So I left. I turned in. I actually still have the letter of resignation that I typed up back then. Um, and I had to, I was forced to leave for financial reasons. So, and I always felt that I would go back, you know, and it actually did happen. I got a phone call again in um, 1993 to go back out on the tour to start back up again with them. <clears throat> the timing was right. And this time I negotiated. I learned from the first tour, this the second tour, I negotiated what I wanted to make off of each, off of each concert. And I gave them this wow Ex, uh, ex, uh, uh, extravagant figure and you know they said okay <laughs> so and I, I made not only the money that I didn't get for the first tour but I was paid well on the second tour so you so, went out in 93 and, and yeah. how long how long did that last I stayed out till about um, the end of 93 I think to maybe the beginning of 94 you know I couldn't I couldn't stay um, longer than that, you know, by that time, you know, the drug situation had got pretty crazy, you know, um, it was a, a bad situation in the organization, you know, the drug situation had infiltrated the whole organization, well, not the whole organization, but most of the organization, including myself, and I realized I had a problem, so I, I did what I had to do, I, I remember telling Benny, Benny Cowan, we just did this gigantic funk festival in Atlanta. And uh, while I was doing that 
while I was playing the keyboards, I was, you know, talking to myself, you know, I got to get out of here, man. I'm having, this is not working for me. Um, um, if I don't leave this situation, I don't know what's going to happen. So I resigned after that. That was the end of the tour. We would get ready to go home for the, about a month or so. And I told him that I wasn't coming back. So I had, to, I had to leave for that reason and check myself in the rehab. And I've been clean about mm, 27 years now. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. So when you uh, joined him in 93, were you the only keyboard player? Or were people like mm-hmm. Amp Fiddler around? Or Well, I, I think Amp Fiddler had just left, I think, to go back out with the brand new heavies. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, they told me, I think, I think somebody told me I was the first time that, I, that they only had one keyboard player, you know, and I was able to handle the bulk of the parts. You know, these were all Parliament Funkadelic songs that we were doing on this tour. <clears throat> I knew them like inside and out. And I, sometimes I felt like an octopus with eight arms, but I got all those parts out there. I got them all in. And and they were okay with everything that I was playing, man. You know, so they even tried to bring another keyboard player out. I can't remember who it was, but they didn't tell me that 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 this person was coming on the stage that night. And I kind of had a problem with that because, you know, I believe that I don't have a problem with sharing the keyboard with anyone, but I kind of like would like to know who's coming, and and I would like to know we can put our heads together to see who's going to play what. Um, what songs, what parts, what patches you're going to use, and which keyboards to do. You know, we can we can divvy this thing up and make it work. But you can't just toss a, a guy up on stage with me, sight unseen, on, I don't really know what he's going to do. And I, I was offended, offended. And so I told him that if you did that, then just let him play the whole the set, and I'll catch the next flight out tomorrow. Well, that didn't happen. You know, they got rid of the other guy. And I stayed. You know, it's the way they handle it. It's just the way that they handle it. I, I don't mind playing with anyway. Uh, matter, matter of fact, I welcome the camaraderie and the musicianship of anyone. And we can make this thing sound really, really good. But if we do it, but we have to do it correctly, though. We have to do it correct. Yeah. Well, so viewers know uh, in your credits related to P Funk, um, you're on the bride's second album. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I have a credit on Uncle Jam Wanchu, Funkadelic. So I don't know. If that was specifically Funkadelic or they just pulled it out of sessions and got some of your playing on that because you said you didn't really record with them. Uh, and then also Felipe Win. Yes, and we did those tracks. Those tracks were pulled out of the Brides of Funkenstein sessions. Those are the tracks that fell on the floor, so to speak. And they fell on the floor, so to speak, and they were swept up and used on other projects like Felipe Win. Um, and um um, one of the, I think one of the songs went on Funkadelic, Freak of the Week. Freak of the Week. We did that in, in the Brides of Funkenstein session. And George, he snapped that up and put it on the Funkadelic album instead. It was, it was supposed to go on um, it was supposed to go on the Brides of Funkenstein album. That didn't happen. Yeah. Well, based on what you're saying, Gary, about your experience then with, um, you know, not getting paid as you thought you should and um that was right around the time uncle jam records got launched with felipe women's record a couple others and then the whole thing just kind of imploded you know Um, i'm I'm guessing you probably saw the writing on the wall i did you know i felt well the thing about it i felt how can i say um 
taken advantage of because I was new and green. You know, I didn't really know how this worked. Like I told you, I just, it was like stepping into the NBA, although I didn't have a manager, you know. I didn't have anybody to go to bat and say, hey, look, man, do this. You should ask for this. You should get this. We're going to get this. I had to do all this myself. And I'm, I'm doing all this work. And so what had happened, like I said, um, I was working, I was kind of filling in with Bernie Worrell on the Funkadelic set, just jumping up there to help him out. And he he liked what I was doing, Bernie. He liked what I was doing. And now, so now I'm doing it every night without getting paid, you know. And I think it was one night, uh, if I remember correctly, Bernie Worrell, he was delayed coming to the concert in Madison Square Gardens. And they said, Gary, man, Bernie going to be late, man. You got to get up there, man. You got to get up there and do this. Can you do it? I'm like, sure, you know. So I'm doing the whole set until he, he can come up there. But I, I just wanted to be compensated, you know. If you're going to count on me to do these things, I'm happy, happy to do it. You know, the thing about it, all I knew is that on on, on, on the on the Aqua Boogie tour, we were selling out venues like um, the Capitol Center with 25,000 people each night. Um, you know, um, the, the Dallas Cotton Bowl or the, 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 the uh, Forum, you know, um, uh, we're making millions of dollars, man. I'm just asking for this little extra, just this little extra per concert. And you tell me, no, I have a problem with that, man. Yeah, no so doubt. Understandable, that. understandable. Um, can you describe to viewers the feeling of being locked into a serious funk groove with the Baltimore connection or maybe in the brides or with, you know, just a, a, a band of, you know, heavy hitters on the one in that groove with the crowd grooving too? What is that feeling like, Gary? You know, for lack of a better term, Scott, it's close to orgasm, man. It's very close, very close, you know. And I, I do I do equate some feelings of music with sex. Actually, it's as strange as that may sound. This is just me talking now. Um, it's an experience, man. It's ex an experience. It's kind of hard to describe, man, you know, um, the energy, the energy from the the crowd, man. You know, it was just um, consuming. I was consumed by it. You know, one of my one of my biggest things that used to turn me on was when we are walking from the dressing room, being escorted by security through the hallways of the venue, into the venue, up the stairs, onto the stage, and the lights go down, and the crowd just goes up. Well, I was almost like an orgasm, <laughs> for, for lack of a better term. That's what it's like, man. You know, um, playing with the playing with the guys when we lock into that groove, and a lot of the times the groove we don't even know we didn't even see the groove coming. It just happened. It just happened. For instance, Skeet, he might he might lock into a thing, man, and and I'll jump. Dennis Chambers will jump right on that, and it's like it spreads like a fire like a wildfire, man, throughout the stage. Um, everybody just catches on fire, man. It becomes this gigantic funk inferno, man. You know, that's what it's like. Um, and who knows how long it lasts. It lasts till somebody, somebody's got to pour water on. Pour water. 
pour water on us, man, to get us to calm down. Literally, man, it's just how it is, man. And and we come off the stage exhausted, man. You know, the Funkadelic concert was like four hours, man, straight. Four hours, most nights, maybe three on some venues. And um, after the concert, all I want to do is uh, go off the stage, jump into the limo or the bus or whatever, and get to the hotel, grab something to eat, and go to sleep, man. Just exhausted. That's what it's like. Good sex. (laughs) I I feel it. Um, I was going to ask you, oh, did did you uh, participate in the uh, so-called anti-tour with the brides on the small Mm -hmm. venues? No, I didn't do that. Um, I heard about that. I think uh, um, I can't remember who who the keyboard player was for that. I didn't do that. I did. I did. I just did the um, the main. My first gig, my first tour was the uh, Brides of Funkerstein Funko Walk um, tour, and we did that. And after that, like I said, I, after I resigned, I didn't do anything else with them. Um, we did do a couple of. I did do a couple one-off gigs. Excuse me, with um, Don Silver down in Virginia, and um, I was asked to do the whiskey a go go. I couldn't make that one, but we didn't really do any more touring after that. After my first tour with them, that was pretty much it for us. Any impressions of uh, Don or Lynn? Yeah, you know, it was a pleasure working with them. They, they, they were really, really cool chicks. You know, they were really. I didn't really deal with Lynn that much. Don. Um, she, I was closer to her because um, she was um, close to um, Jeff Bunn, who was almost like my brother, so to speak. So we were around each other a lot, you know, and she would um, fly out from California to visit us in Baltimore and hang out with us for a few days when we enjoyed that. So I had a more um, closer relationship. But as far as professionally working with them, they were just consummate professionals right on the right on the money, man. Hardworking women as far as the funk is concerned they really put the time in to get their act right we all did though we all did we worked really hard really really hard i think that's why a lot of people said they preferred they actually liked the bride set even more so than jordan we were giving the funkadelic and the p-funk a run for their money man between the um the squad with dennis chambers um jeff bun myself blackbird mcknight and, and and the baltimore connection horns Man, we were throwing we were throwing it out there, man. Throwing it out there. You know, yeah, it was, was a killer band. I remember Blackbird used to uh, wear the face paint. Yeah, we all did. Matter of fact, um, uh, Clip he used to paint our faces. I let him paint my face once, but um, we would do that. Had makeup and wardrobe downstairs in the wardrobe section. And Clip says, "Girl, let me paint your face, man." One side of my face was um red and white stripes and the other side was blue with white star with this one white star on my cheek you know like a flag you know yeah, i just let them go hey man go ahead paint me paint me but we had fun with that yeah well tell the people gary uh where music took you uh after p-funk after p-funk life after p-funk man what we did i started working with this squad here in Baltimore, production company in baltimore called basement boys productions and teddy douglas jay steinauer and tommy davis they had recruited me to do some tracks for this artist named crystal waters or somebody i, I didn't even know who she was 
But that was the beginning of her career, the Gypsy Woman and the 100% tracks that came out. I had had some things to do with those tracks, especially the 100%. If you listen to the track that Crystal Waters did, 100% Pure Love, that's pretty much all me on all the music. And we did use a guitar player. But um, I started doing remixes and, and, and developing those artists, Ultra Nate, things like that. I moved into the dance world, the European dance community and began working with them and I kind of took a foot out of the funk funk organization and went into house and that's where I am today I stayed with that I work with the basement boys for wow I guess maybe 10 11 years did a lot of tours with Crystal Waters from her music director for a while and um, me and another um, partner in, in that organization named DJ Spin um, we decided to branch off and form our own company called Quantize Recordings, which is what I'm still working with to this day. We're making some of the hottest music on the dance floor. Yeah, that's what I'm doing now. That's the studio that I'm in now. This is what we do here, house music now. And remixes for other artists, too. It's kind of like uh, the way uh, Sheila Horn went, right? I mean, she went into dance music from P-Funk. Exactly, exactly. You know, and the th- and the strange thing about it, I didn't know she was into the dance music. I had to, I discovered her that she was doing this by accident, and she was flabbergasted that I was working with Crystal Waters, one of her um idols, I guess you could say. She really was impressed with the fact. You know, I said I'm, I was a big. I really helped to put Crystal Waters on the map. You know, she well, you know, she's a uh, super duper talent in her own right. But you know, we with all our all of our collective creativity, that's how she got to where she is today. She's still doing well to this day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what are you working on right now? Well, right now I'm working on some uh, some remixes for DJ Spin. I'm going to go ahead. Some artists that we work on artists that are based in Europe, European artists. Um, hold on, I'll work on Joyce, Joyce Sims. I don't really know these folks, but their tracks come to our production company for to be remade. That's one of my specialties. I'll take a track by anyone and make it sound like something you never imagined that it could sound like. And using your the very same vocals that you recorded, the same vocals are the same. But I will strip away all of the music. And I may even change the key and put it in a relative key and hand it back to you. And you're like, wow, is this the same? Is, is this the same track? It's like, it's like you're giving me a, um, a, a, a Chevrolet Corvette and I turned it into a Thunderbird, so to speak. You know, you're like, wow, this is just the same car. No, it's not. Not the same car. But I enjoy doing that, you know. So that's what I'm doing right now. A lot of artists, like I, I don't really. It's kind of impersonal. I don't really know all these people that I work that I do work for. Uh, it's like a factory. The tracks come in, um, I do what I gotta do, and send them back out, and I invoice the production companies. That's how I make my money. Yeah. Wow. When was the last time you went out and performed on stage? It's been a while. It's been a while. Wow. Um, I had kind of taken myself, um, retired myself from the stage only, only to do, I will only do special projects like the ones I was telling you about. If the Baltimore Connection fires back up again, I'm there, man. Definitely, I'm there. 
Um, I would do a P-Funk concert if they had like a um, 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 P-Funk All-Stars reunion concert somewhere. I'm there, man, for that. You know, I just can't do the day-to-day, city-to-city. I'm, I'm just kind of finished with that. Finished with that part. I'll, I'll be happy to do anything that's recording-wise, you know. Um, we were going to actually remix remix a track from George, one of George's tracks, but we decided not to do it. It was too vulgar, man. That's not where our head is now. We're not into all that. You know, so we, well, because we couldn't change the lyric, we just didn't do anything with it, man. I just kicked it back. But um, I'm 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 up I'm up for doing anything that's really really nice and important, something for television, um, a, a major concert somewhere anywhere in the world. I'm ready to go. I got my passport ready, man. I'll meet you there. Mm-hmm. Um, but as long as I can be back by next week, I'm good. Are, are you surprised? Are you surprised that the uh, P Funk All Stars, as they are, the the group is still touring and George is still out there? Actually, yes and no. You know, I, I always knew that um, George Clinton is like this really, really resilient guy, man. You know, we've been through a lot. And I say we, because we were in this together, man. We've been through a lot. You know, we've, we've come through a lot of storms, all of us. P-Funk, P-Funk organization is probably one of the most resilient groups out there. We can just take, we, we've been through so much shiggity man that we just can go through anything man come out smelling like a rose we'll swim through a sewer pipe and come out on the other end smelling like a rose man and so i'm no surprise to answer your question no surprise and i always said to my friends and family p-funk is the type of group to work for if you want to work Uh, i couldn't really work with some of the big artists like beyonce or any of them they don't work that much man you can't you can't pay any bills with them First of all, they already have their money. I mean, they don't care about a tour. But a, um, um, a scrapping group, an organization like the P-Funk organization, you're going to work, man. You're going to work. And so I can appreciate that. So, no, to answer your question, no, not, no surprise. No surprise. What project of yours are you most proud of from your entire career? Oh, let's see. Probably, let's see, man. I enjoy my work with Crystal Waters. Um I got some gold records on my wall from dealing with her. Those are like quite some achievements. I didn't get anything like that from any of my other organizations. So I would have to say Basement Boys Productions, we did really good work with them in the European dance community. I enjoyed my time with the Brides and um, the P-Funk organization, to be sure. And I learned a lot. That's where I cut my teeth, you know. Um, And I learned, I met so many, so many top, top, entertainers in the business man i mean i'm just talking to people like stevie wonder and janet jackson and bobby brown just conversing with them like like we've been knowing each other for years i really really appreciate that yeah that's i really appreciate that aspect so yeah that's it you know i had those other names that were associated with you and i was just curious if any of those are worth uh just mentioning the projects of a tony braxton angie stone uh, Lenny Kravitz, Michael Jackson, or Brandy? Those tracks were done through the Basement Boys organization. They had connections to a lot of major, major artists at the time. Basement Boys organization is a Baltimore-based production company. They, I know they had, they had contracts with three major labels at the same time back in the 90s. Nobody in Baltimore has done that before or since. 
you know, that's where all those those names came from. They were really um, excited about the work that we did with Crystal Waters and and other artists, and they wanted us to do the same thing for them. So they would send us their stuff. You know, um, Sony Records, they sent us a track from Michael Jackson um, that he wasn't happy with that was on his Blood on the Dance Floor album, a track called Stranger in Moscow. Um, they wanted it to be fast, man. So how do you take how do you take a slow dragging song and make it like a this really big dance hit? Easy. We got computers and we got the the um the know-how to get that done. So we like I told you, we stripped out every bit of music that he did on in the studio on the original track and sped it up just a little bit and changed the BPMs and went to work, constructing a whole new idea for that same song we didn't touch anything with his vocals except sped it up just a little bit and sent it back to sony and they just loved it man they loved it hmm. like and that's magic- what we do magicians in a way that's what we do we, we create magic man and one of my things to do like i said i'll take a song that you don't like and it's like taking a piece of a raggedy car that's in a in the junkyard and i'll turn it into this pristine shiny beautiful object man that you never thought you would say is this the same car yes it is same same track yeah of course the artists have to have an open mind though to also what you might do with it they do and all of them their mind is not open so they didn't like everything that we did as our artists didn't like everything you know it was too radical for them and that's fine we're okay with that we're not going to change it though you can go ahead and send it to your next production company and give, let them have a stab at it. We did our thing. We like we like what we did. And so now we're done. We're done. We're not going to keep trying to go back and fix it. And this is what we think it should be like. You come to us for for what we want, for, for you know, what we have, what we offer. That's what you come to us for. So we keep it at that. We don't change. Do you want to uh, plug anything for viewers, like a website or any kind of contact information? Actually, I don't have I don't have I don't have a website. I'm I'm working. I'll do a lot of work behind the scenes, Scott. You know, you can you can get um, a really good idea of my work if you go to um, YouTube and just type in my name, Gary Hutchins, um, DJ Spin S P E N. Uh, our team, my team, my squad of DJ Spin and Gary Hutchins, we do a lot of magical stuff. Everything that we've done just about is on. YouTube and Beatport, Beatport.com, YouTube.com. And you can get an idea of what I've been doing, what I've done in a while, a long time ago. Um, another another source is um, TrackSource.com, T-R-A-X-S-O-U-R-C-E, TrackSource.com. Go in the search, search box and type in my name, Gary Hudgens, DJ Spin, and all of our stuff will come up. Our whole catalog will come up, everything. And there you have it. How'd you meet DJ Spen? Because he seems like a, a important partner in what you he is. And he he was working in the, the beef studio, a basement boy studio. And one night they just threw on um, the producers just threw us in the studio together. I didn't really know him though. I knew who he was, but I didn't know. They said, "This is here. Y'all get in here and come up with something." <laughs> you know, and that's what we did. We just started working together. And wow, man, that was back in about like nineteen ninety. 91 somewhere back then man you know and and we're still working together to this very day to this very day wow all right well so good to hear that you've uh 
prospered, you know, post P-Funk and found your your niche and your groove. And uh, thank you so much, Gary, for spending the time and sharing all this with us and for the, the P-Funk you contributed through the years, especially. We love the funk. And uh, thank you for talking to us. Well, I appreciate you having me, Scott. Thank you, sir. And you know, call me anytime. If you want some more information, we can. I'd be happy to do a part two. There's more to tell. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkandstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkandstuff.net, and linking through funkinstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven results-oriented professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the media services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on keep vibing, on vibing to the rhythm of the one.